Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1956, a young man stood on a passenger boat as it sailed towards Australia. Back home in England, he had found himself on the wrong side of the law. But now he was headed to Melbourne, and everything was going to change. First, he chose a new middle name. From that point on, he would be known as John Wayne Glover. He had always loved cowboys as a kid. Next, Glover would find a good job, a wife, and a family. All the things a man was supposed to have. Then he would have his fresh start. But once he arrived in Australia, he realized something was wrong. No matter how much he wanted to leave his old life behind, he couldn't. The darkness inside of Glover had followed him all the way to Australia and it would soon lead him down a brutal and violent path. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on Florence Broadhurst. Last week, we covered Florence's rise to fame as a wallpaper designer. This week, we'll dive into the decades-long investigation into her gruesome murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On October 20th, 1977, a thick gray sky looked down on funeral attendees as they mourned the loss of 78-year-old Florence Broadhurst. It had been five days since she was murdered in her studio in Paddington, New South Wales, Australia. Guests came from all across the continent to pay their respects to the famous designer, but as speakers delivered their eulogies, a shock went around the room. Little by little, members of the audience realized that everything they thought they knew about Florence was a lie. 
She was not an English aristocrat. She had not studied music and design in Paris. She was just a woman from a small rural town who had invented a flashy backstory to match her flashy artwork. Grumblings and whispers blew through the reception, and throughout the room, plainclothes cops listened in, hoping to overhear something that might point them towards a murder suspect. So, were you close with her? I thought I was. We worked together for years, and it turns out I never knew the true her. That must have been a surprise, just like the way she died. That's probably the least surprising bit, honestly. Why do you say that? I worked for her for a long time, yeah? I saw a lot of people come in and out, and most of them were very young. And some were desperate types, people with problems. She was always trying to give someone a chance, even if they didn't deserve it. Anybody come to mind that stands out? Just between us. I wish. There were a lot of shady types, but who am I to say who's a suspect? We'll have to leave that to the police, right? Right. In the days following the funeral, investigators tried to piece together everything they gathered from the crime scene. Based on Florence's wounds, they strongly suspected the murder weapon was a piece of lumber found outside the studio. Her emerald and diamond rings were missing, which pointed towards robbery as the motive. But maybe the murder meant more than that. It seemed like whoever killed Florence was someone close to her. The back door was locked from the outside, which led police to believe that the killer knew where the keys were and locked up when they left. According to one account of the crime scene, two cups of tea had been left on Florence's table. She had been expecting someone on the night of her murder. The investigation team rifled through all of Florence's contacts, trying to figure out who the mysterious visitor might have been. Over the next few months, they conducted dozens of interviews. They sat down with her employees, her friends, and her ex-husband. Even other designers who hadn't worked with Florence in years were asked to provide alibis. But it was no use. One by one, names were crossed off the list. After nearly a year, there were no more contacts to look into. All the leads had run dry. Finally, the police department accepted defeat. They loaded everything about Florence into one folder and then filed it away unsolved. Around that same time, Florence's son, who we will call William for the sake of his privacy, was making a decision of his own. He had spent the last year struggling to keep his mother's business afloat. Now, finally, he had had enough. And so, when a large company came to him with an offer to buy out the company, William jumped at the opportunity, and it changed hands in 1979. With that, Florence Broadhurst and her legacy started to disappear. At least in the physical world. In the fall of 1979, two years after Florence's murder, 41-year-old Chardonnay Rose began to hear a ghostly voice calling to her. It was an elderly woman, and she said she would be back soon. It turned out that Chardonnay lived in Florence Broadhurst's old apartment, and she became convinced that Florence's spirit was trying to communicate. William was obviously skeptical, but he agreed to meet Chardonnay at his mother's former studio anyway. 
There. Do you hear? Hear what? She speaks, even now. Not to me, apparently. She must be speaking only to me. She has chosen me as her conduit. I see. And why is that? We are so alike, your mother and I. We are intertwined. Miss Rose, I think the only thing you and my mother have in common is fraud. Please, William. Your mother and I have a connection. Lucky you. I must keep the connection going. William returned to his home that evening. He was likely embarrassed and angry at himself for even thinking that Rose was telling the truth. His mother was dead and gone. But he still wondered about her case. So he picked up the phone and dialed the number for the police. They told him the same thing they had told him for the past two years. The police were doing everything that they could. William thanked them and hung up the phone. He presumably knew by now what they really meant. The case had run cold. Coming up, we'll cover the reopening of Florence's case and the reason investigators came back to it a decade later. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this fantastic series from Parcast. It's already one of my new favorites. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why should you hold your breath when passing a cemetery? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By March 1st, 1989, Florence Broadhurst's death was a distant memory. The case had been cold for over a decade, but a string of murders in suburban Sydney, Australia, was about to blow her case wide open again. In a quiet alleyway, tucked far away from any main street, police discovered the body of an elderly woman, her blood staying the pavement. One of the investigators was a homicide detective. We will call him Sergeant Farrell for the sake of his privacy. Farrell took stock of the scene. A large pool of blood surrounded the victim's head. Clearly, the attacker had approached her from behind and bludgeoned her. 
For the next few weeks, Sergeant Farrell spoke with the victim's family, people who lived near the alleyway and businesses within a mile of the murder scene. There were no witnesses, not even a lead. But then, on May 9th, he received an alarming call. Another woman had been murdered in the Sydney suburbs, and the situation seemed too similar to be a coincidence. The victim was an elderly woman who had been hit in the head and then choked with her undergarments. But this time, the killer hadn't struck in a dark alley. They had followed the victim into the foyer of her apartment. Farrell immediately began knocking on doors. And finally, after a series of attacks that August and October on elderly women at a retirement home, he got what he was looking for. Witnesses had seen a strange, stocky man that night. They said he had ruddy skin and gray hair. Farrell quickly hopped on the phone with the friends and families of both victims, hoping one of them might know a man who fit that description. Unfortunately, no one did. But throughout the next month, Farrell's phone rang with more accounts of elderly women killed in the same fashion. There were three murders in November alone. But just like the first two deaths, there were no clear signs of a suspect. That all changed on January 11th, 1990. That day, Sergeant Farrell received a tip from a nearby hospital. According to them, one of the elderly residents had accused a visiting pie salesman of molesting her in her room. The salesman's name was John Wayne Glover. Sergeant Farrell ran to his department's database and began searching for any information he could find on Glover. Sure enough, Glover had a criminal history of assaulting women. And then there was his mugshot. Glover may have been young in the picture, but Farrell could still see his stout figure and ruddy skin. He immediately started trailing Glover. Over the next two months, Sergeant Farrell secretly tracked Glover's movements. He wanted to learn what kind of man he was, what his patterns were. Glover, now 57, seemed to have a typical suburban life. Each day, he would travel around the Sydney suburbs to sell pies. Each night, he would return home to his wife and two daughters. Soon, the monotony began setting in. Farrell started to question if he had the wrong guy. Glover fit the description, he had a criminal history, but otherwise nothing was out of the ordinary. Then, one day in March of 1990, Glover drove a new route. Farrell quickly snapped to attention and put up a chase. Eventually, Glover pulled into the driveway of Joan Sinclair, a 60-year-old widow. Farrell parked his car a few houses down. He watched as Glover knocked on the door and was let inside. Farrell waited and watched. Hours went by and there was no activity. Sergeant Farrell likely started to get nervous. The sun began to lower and there was no sound or movement coming from inside the house. He decided he had waited long enough. Sergeant Farrell radioed for backup. Around sunset, Farrell and a team of officers burst into Joan Sinclair's home. The first thing they saw was a lifeless body on the living room floor. Farrell rushed over to the body, but he already knew what he was going to find. 
Joan Sinclair had been bludgeoned in the head. A pool of blood stained her carpet. According to some reports, her dress had been hiked up and her undergarments were removed. They were tied around her neck. In the bathroom, Farrell found Glover. He sat naked in the bathtub. Shallow cuts bled lightly from his wrists. Strewn on the tiled floor was an empty bottle of whiskey and orange prescription bottles. He was still breathing. They rushed the man to the hospital and pumped his stomach. By the next morning, Glover had almost recovered. As soon as he came to, Farrell marched into his hospital room and put him in cuffs. Then he got started on a case against him. First, he headed to the Crown Prosecutor's office. Hmm. Ah, here we are. John Wayne Glover. Oof, that's quite a record. It's everything we have on him. Some petty theft from when he was younger, assault charges from 20 or so years ago. I think that's a pretty clear history of criminal activity. Right. But look. There's a gap. A 25-year gap. Don't you think that's odd? This bloke's been assaulting women, spends a few nights in jail and gets parole, and then goes silent? All of a sudden, 25 years later, he's murdering older women and posing their bodies. You think there might be more? Question is, who are they? With that, Sergeant Farrell got to work digging through the cold cases. He was looking for anything that seemed to match Glover's M.O. Eventually, he singled out three unsolved cases that involved murdered older women. These unsolved murders started to add up, and soon Farrell and the prosecution were able to put together a tight case against Glover. By the time he appeared in court on March 28, 1990, they were able to link him to six different murders. The most damning moment during the trial, however, came when the prosecutor questioned a psychiatrist about Glover. Do you think that based on the nature of these crimes, his behavior is confined to the year-long period of the six murders? Not at all. This kind of cruelty does not typically come out of nowhere. I wouldn't be surprised if Glover has many more victims that we do not yet know of. On November 29, 1991, Glover was given six consecutive life sentences, one for each woman he murdered, plus additional time for his assaults. As the judge handed down the sentence, Glover remained completely calm and still. When the judge told him he would have no chance of parole, Glover's face didn't show a shred of emotion. He barely blinked as he learned he would spend the rest of his natural life in prison. Then Glover calmly walked with police as they escorted him out of the courtroom. He climbed into the back of the police car and never uttered a sound. Investigators and prosecution celebrated, knowing they had put away one of the most dangerous men Australia had ever seen. But something was still bothering Sergeant Farrell. The psychiatrist at the trial had said that Glover had likely committed more murders they hadn't even connected to him yet, and those victims' families deserved to know what happened. So he dove back into the cold case archives. One night, Farrell started reading through Florence Broadhurst's case file. Her death may not have fit Glover's M.O. exactly, 
but there were some interesting similarities. She was an elderly woman, and Farrell knew that Glover was in the area when she was killed. If there were more Glover murders out there waiting to be found, Florence Broadhurst's death might be one of them. Farrell just needed to see if there was a connection. So he picked up the phone and dialed Glover's ex-wife. We'll call her Ada for the sake of her privacy. I appreciate your talking with me, Ada. I know he's already been convicted, but I'm still following up on a few leftover leads. I was hoping you could help me understand why he did what he did. Get inside his head. I gave up on trying to understand that man's dark mind. The only thing I can think of is that his mother died a few months before. Breast cancer. It must run in the family because he got it too a few months after she died. I heard him mumbling one day about it being a woman's disease. I don't know what I ever saw in that man. He fooled a lot of people. By the way, does the name Florence Broadhurst mean anything to you? Broadhurst? I don't... Oh, wait. She isn't that designer, is she? I think he met her at a wedding back in 73. We ended up buying curtains from her. She was nice, if I remember right. Gave us a full tour of her studio. I see. Listen, I need to run, but if I have any other questions, I'll be in touch. You've been very helpful. Very, very helpful. Glover had known Florence. He had been inside her studio. Quickly, the pieces started falling together. Maybe Florence had been Glover's first murder. There was only one person who knew for sure, and he was locked in Lithgow Prison. Sergeant Farrell put in a call to the penitentiary where Glover was serving his time. He wanted to sit down with the convicted killer. If he could lay out all the facts about Florence Broadhurst, Farrell likely thought, then Glover may confess. He was already going to spend the rest of his life in prison, after all. Sergeant Farrell met John Wayne Glover for the first time since Glover had been put in jail. And the officer's optimism soon proved naive. Sergeant Farrell, lovely to see you. Save it, Glover. I need to know how many others there were. I don't know what you're talking about. Let's start with Florence Broadhurst. Who? You know who. Florence Broadhurst. Murdered in 1977 at the age of 78. You met her four years earlier at a wedding. I have no idea who that is. I never met Florence Broadhurst. Come on, why lie at this point, Glover? You're already in here. I spoke with Ada and she confirmed it. The two of you bought curtains from Florence. Sorry, she must be confused. She and I never bought curtains from anyone named Florence Broadhurst. I'm happy to corroborate any actual evidence you may find against me, but this isn't evidence. Even if I had known Florence, which I didn't, it's a coincidence at best. You'll have to try harder. Farrell left Lithgow Prison without the answer he wanted, but he refused to give up. He decided that he would get to the bottom of Florence's death no matter what. Glover had demanded that he try harder, so that is exactly what Sergeant Farrell set out to do. Coming up, we'll cover Sergeant Farrell's nearly 15-year hunt for the truth. Now, the conclusion to our story. After John Wayne Glover's trial and imprisonment, 
Sergeant Farrell began doing everything he could to prove that Glover had murdered 78-year-old Florence Broadhurst all the way back in 1977. Sergeant Farrell dug through Florence's old and dusty case file. He found a list of contacts and started calling Florence's old employees, friends, and family. Unfortunately, many of the friends, family members, and employees who are still around did not have any new or revelatory information. The best he got was confirmation that Glover and Florence had indeed been at the same wedding. Witnesses even attested that they had spoken throughout most of the event. Farrell knew, however, that Glover would just deny it. He needed to find a different way to get Glover to reveal information. Word quickly got around that Sergeant Farrell was trying to connect Glover to unsolved cold cases, so other cops decided to do the same. Investigators from Victoria tried to interview Glover about two unsolved murders of their own, but John Wayne Glover refused to talk to any of them. He said the only person that he would speak with was Sergeant Farrell. So Farrell headed to the prison on their behalf. Just like last time, Glover was stiffly polite and completely unrevealing. Sergeant Farrell knew he couldn't question Glover directly. Instead, he pulled out a map of Melbourne, Australia, and asked Glover to show him where he lived when he was there. Glover reached over and drew an X on the map. Few other words were exchanged between the two men. Glover did not seem interested in talking about any cases, so Sergeant Farrell left and met back up with the Victorian investigators and gave them the map. When they looked at the map, one of the investigators shook his head. The other let out a sardonic laugh. Sergeant Farrell didn't understand. The investigators explained to him that the X didn't mark where Glover had lived. It marked where one of the victims had been killed. Sergeant Farrell realized that Glover was playing games with him, and Glover was winning. But Farrell wasn't discouraged. He decided to try a different tactic. He went into the evidence archives to pull up what had been collected on Florence's case. With all the new technology available, he hoped that maybe he could connect DNA from the scene to Glover. Unfortunately, his hopes were short-lived. I'm sorry, Sergeant Farrell. It looks like the evidence for that case has been cleared out. What do you mean, cleared out? Well, we have to make room. New evidence comes in all the time. Besides, that case is almost 20 years old. Yeah, and it's been unsolved for 20 years. So why would you destroy the evidence? Hey, man, it wasn't my call. It could have come from any of the higher-ups over the years. It's expensive to pay for so much storage, you know. Yeah, sure. I understand. Sorry about that, Sergeant. There's only one way to do this, then. Whether he liked it or not, the only way to close this case was if Sergeant Farrell could get Glover to admit to it. So he continued to visit with the serial murderer. From before the trial in 1990 to 2001, Sergeant Farrell met with Glover at least a few times each year. None of these conversations ever led to meaningful results, But slowly, Sergeant Farrell began to understand Glover in a strange way, and it seemed like Glover felt the same. He started to greet him like an old friend. But as the years went on, Farrell began to get fed up. He had worked on this case for a decade, and he didn't feel any closer to solving it. 
As he pulled into Lithgow Prison one day in 2001, he made up his mind that this would be it. It would be his last time with John Wayne Glover. Good morning, Sergeant. So, what questions do you have for me today? Same questions as always. Why did you kill Florence Broadhurst? Same answers, then. I don't know who that is. John, please. There's a family still in mourning. Florence had a son. He needs to know. You lost your own mother. Surely you can understand. Let's not talk about my mother. Sorry. It was breast cancer that got her, right? You ended up getting it two months later? I don't know why you want to talk about such unpleasant things, Sergeant. Why don't we discuss the murders instead? I can understand how that might make you feel, John. It is a woman's disease, after all. Your mother and Florence were probably about the same age, weren't they? If they had anything else in common, then her son's lucky she's dead. Anyway, I mostly came to tell you I'm retiring. Good for you. You've worked hard. Goodbye, Glover. With that, Sergeant Farrell retired from the force. His life as a cop faded into memory. But every now and then, John Wayne Glover would pop into his mind. The man was a puzzle that Farrell never quite seemed to crack. He told himself that younger detectives could take it from here. He had done all he could. But years went by and there was no news about Florence Broadhurst or Glover. And then, finally, Farrell made a decision. He needed to go speak with Glover again. On Monday, August 29th, 2005, Sergeant Farrell sat across from John Wayne Glover for what would be the last time. Sergeant, welcome back. Uh, remind me again, how many do you think I killed? I've told you the same thing for years, John. We got you for six. I think there are three others, including Florence. That makes nine. That's right. Oh, by the way, I drew you something. Think of it as an early anniversary present. Lovely. I'll look at it later. Listen, John, we're both old men now. How long do you want to keep doing this? You know, I've been thinking the same thing. <laughs> if I could unlock the dark parts of my mind for you, Sergeant, I would. But alas... Right. Well, if you ever can, let me know. Please. I'll work on it. You'll be my first call. Shake on it. You've got yourself a deal. Farrell still managed to feel hopeful after their meeting. Glover had agreed to try and open the dark parts of his mind. Maybe that meant that finally, after all this time, Farrell would get the truth. Unfortunately, Farrell never got his wish. Only a week and a half later, Farrell's phone rang. The voice on the other line had shocking news. John Wayne Glover had hanged himself inside his cell. Sergeant Farrell sank deep into his chair. Without saying a word, he hung up the phone. Shocked silence turned to frantic ruffling through his coat pockets. He found the forgotten drawing that Glover had given him. At first, Sergeant Farrell was confused. It seemed to just be a pencil drawing of a property with pine trees. Then, Sergeant Farrell looked more closely. 
hidden in one of the pine trees, like a pattern design, was the number nine. Sergeant Farrell tossed the drawing on his desk and stared at it. This drawing was a tease. It was tinder to keep the theories burning, but it was not an admission. Any insight into its meaning would just be speculation and nothing more. Glover had won the game. Not long after Glover's suicide, Florence Broadhurst's son gave an interview. William, now in his 60s, had watched her legacy fizzle out. He had seen her case go cold twice over, and now he was ready to tell his mother's story and keep her memory alive. Your mother has such a fascinating story. I'm surprised no one has gone through it fully. She was very much of her time. As trends and fashions moved on, I think the world moved on from her. But you never did. How could I? She was taken from me, and I never got any answers. Sergeant Farrell believed very strongly that it was John Wayne Glover. Does that give you any sense of closure? He believed it, but he could never prove it. I try and tell myself that he must be right. It must have been Glover. But what if it wasn't? What if it was someone we employed? What if it was someone we knew? Ah, it never ends, does it? I want to believe it was Glover. It makes sense. It must have been him. Or it wasn't. Looking at everything we've learned, I have to believe the prevailing theory that it was John Wayne Glover who killed Florence Broadhurst. The method of murder was so similar, and he knew Florence. I'm so close to agreeing with you, but I have the same questions as Florence's son. Florence had many suspicious employees, some of whom had histories of addiction and the motive to commit the crime. It's still possible that someone else attacked and robbed her and then disappeared. In any case, Florence Broadhurst lived a complicated life. She reinvented herself and her past in order to get what she wanted. She was also exceedingly clever and excelled at whatever she set her mind to. She was a woman who used her resources and talents to climb to the top of the design world and spread color and vibrance throughout the world. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Florence Broadhurst, amongst the many sources we used, we found Florence Broadhurst, Her Secret and Extraordinary Lives by Helen O'Neill, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If... We live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Joseph Bricker, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Ellie Schiff, Laura Faye Smith, K.G. Tang, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Bad omens? Good fortune. Pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.